welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Mark Spector, FAIA, here in the studio as my guest on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Mark is the esteemed CEO and owner of Spector Companies, a renowned global architecture, interiors, and master planning firm specializing in high design, innovation, and sustainability. Initially established by his father, Michael Harris Spector, FAIA, in 1965, Mark has taken the helm of this latest iteration of the firm, leading his team to undertake projects across the United States and worldwide. With over 55 years of experience, Spectre Companies has developed a strong foundation in various architectural practices, continuously advancing their creative and technical strategies. Driven by a commitment to sustainability, carbon neutrality, and the principles of passive and net zero design and construction, these values have become intrinsic in the firm's cultural DNA. Spectre Companies has established offices in New York City, Woodbury, Long Island, and Miami, Florida. Mark also has global collaborations in Melbourne, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, allowing him to actively engage in diverse market sectors ranging from workplace or life place, which I'm interested to hear that, environments, mixed-use developments, multifamily, hospitality, education, healthcare, institutional, sports and entertainment, retail, and Spectre Home Residence. Mark is a member of the American Institute of Architects College of Fellows and is widely recognized and highly respected and a well-known personality in the New York Tri-State A&E community. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Oh, Chris, I'm a, I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> That's right. I love it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> thank you for the, those kind words. You don't hear them very often. <laughs> <laughs> well deserved. Well deserved. Thank all you. true. Thank you. So I'm excited to have you here. Um, I was As I was kind of preparing for this and thinking about it, um, I want to sort of talk a little bit about an uncomfortable situation, um, probably more for me at this point, um, asking you about it. So one of our design principles here at Mancini Duffy um, worked for you for many, many years. Yes. Um, and I've cleared it with her that I can I can mention this and, and with you a little bit ahead of time. So um, I was looking for a design director level, high level person, and I had known Jessica Manamato from 20 years ago when I had worked with her. Um, um, and so, you know, I stole her from you, right? Um, we met in secret, we talked, we, you know, and eventually she signed on. And I think even to make matters worse, she took a client or two here as well. <laughs> um, so, and I obviously have been on the other side of this too. So I, I, I know what that that's all about. So number one, nothing personal. Of course, uh, my not. apologies. <laughs> By no means. Um, uh, and thank you, because she's been a, an amazing addition to the firm for the last five years. But my question is really more, um, when it comes to these types of things, the poaching and the stealing of key employees, um, what if I had called you ahead of time and I had said to you, hey, you don't know me, 
but I'm having discussions with one of your employees. And as a courtesy, you know, I'm letting you know that we are going to hire her. Um, what would your reaction have been to that? Do you, do you think that's something that we should do more as a profession? Is that totally ridiculous? What's your, what's your thoughts behind that? You know, it's a good question. Uh, Jess is an amazing, talented architect. We, we enjoyed having her at Spectre. If you, I'm not sure you know, but she did two tours of duty yes. with us. Yep. And, you know, when she decided that she was going to be leaving for the final time, um, we were excited for her mm. because what we could not give her at Spectre, she could attain mm -hmm. at Mancini. Uh, but to answer your question, I do think that there should be communication, respectful communication at the ownership level, the principal level. Mm -hmm. If a key member of a firm is considering leaving or if there is another firm that is interested and to have that professional dialogue, it wasn't it wasn't it wouldn't change the end game. Yeah. But what it does do is that it just gives us a respect for one another in the roles that we serve as principals and owners and then bless and celebrate the move. Yeah, I like you know, that. There are, in our profession, team members, no, we, we don't call them employees, team members come and go. We all invest a substantial amount of time and money into our team members with the hope that they will stay and flourish. And Spectre has an incredible history of longevity with some of our team members that have been with us for 40 years, mm -hmm. 35 years, 30 years. Coupled with those that are just joining us now out of school, it, it's, it's a very interesting potpourri of, of talent that we've created. But if someone wants to leave, that we have given them the tools to feel confident that they can leave and do well. Yeah. And I think that's one of our best gifts to them is to provide them what they need to work in the workplace. And if they choose to go out and start their own firm or go to another firm, we celebrate it and we support it. And Spectre has launched many firms. Oh, that's cool. That originated with my dad when he started through his career. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that that I do love to see when people go on to other successes. Right. And I my my, you know, mantra has always been the door is always open if you want to come back, um, for the most part. Um, for the most part. There's always a bit of an asterisk on that. <laughs> That's yes. right. Exactly. But you're right. I think when a, when, a, when a key employee is ready to leave, they are ready to leave. And there's really nothing more that we could do for them. Um, someone, an early mentor of mine said, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave leaders. Right. So I always do take that personally when somebody leaves, right? And I know there's many factors to it. And I do try to look back and think, well, what could I have done better to keep this person or what did... You know, what what message did I send that was wrong? We had a key person leave in New Jersey and I, I you know, constantly saying, well, how how did this happen? Right. What did I do wrong? It was definitely my fault. Right. And so but I agree. I think there is an open I will say Jim Donahue from Structure Tone once called me when he was going to take someone on the BD side from us um, and he wanted to give me the heads up. Just as a courtesy, well, which I thought was there one go. of the classiest things. He said, I really don't want to hurt you. If this is really going to hurt you, please let me know now. And I said, no, it's not going to hurt. It'll be okay. You know, 
you know, it, I, that was very classy. <laughs> you can soul search. And again, we all, we take this profession, we take everything very personal. Yes. I think that's just part of <laughs> part and parcel of, of being an architect. Um, and you always want to do a post-mortem if someone of substance or really anyone on your team decides to leave just to get a better understanding as to why. Yep. And if there are gaps, how to fix them and correct them. Yep. You know, fail forward, as I always say. I like that. So Absolutely. So switch gears a little bit. Uh, if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about your fellow architects? What annoys me about my <laughs> fellow architects? Just one thing? <laughs> uh, you, can, you can list hundreds if you'd like. No, no. Architecture is a noble profession. You know, we choose to go into this uh, with passion and with love and creativity. But it is a for-profit business. And I think the, the rub is that that is there alone, you know, bridging the theory and the practice. And as I mentioned to you when we met, I do lecture about this very topic at various universities and schools of architecture around the country yeah. where kids that are learning the craft of being an architect are not learning the business side. And I think that is the rub for me is that if, if there was a more understanding of the operations of the business side of, of the field of architecture, I think we would have a more collaborative ecosystem amongst all the architects. And we don't, we're not seeing that right now, you know? Yeah. That's that's what that's my rub. Do you think that that we as architecture firms should should really get in a room and talk about fees and talk about how we um, go after jobs and price jobs rather than the sort of race to the bottom and outsourcing and all of these things that there's a lot of firms that are that are trying to do? You know, Chris, that that <clears throat> would be a fantastic opportunity <laughs> if you really think about it. A convention of sorts of the, of the top 50 architects in New York City as a retreat, perhaps. And learning from your colleagues is only makes you a better architect and a better leader for your own team. Mm -hmm. And I do think we would gain a lot by learning and understanding what goes on behind what makes people tick as it relates to how they operate their business. There is a clear drive to the fee, to the bottom of the fee right now. We're seeing it. We don't like to participate in it. We yeah. prefer to swim in the blue ocean <laughs> and have people work with us because they want our brand to work with their brand. Mm -hmm. But the nature of this business is that we all travel in the red ocean a bit of competition. And fees are at the top of the food chain as it relates to how one team is selected over another. But and the profession needs to grapple with this. It needs to find a way to correct it and flip the perception of the of what the architect does. And when we're able to do that successfully, you know, I think the fees will come with it. Yeah, I yeah, I, I I agree, and I worry. Um, you know, when I look, you and I both do a lot of interiors work yes. and the interior specifically is very commoditized, yes. you know, X amount of dollars per square foot and sort of whatever state you're in, that's what it is. And you can pretty much, if you want the job, you know, you have to be at or below that. Um, and I do worry that, you know, that, that, that 
in a weird way, if I look back 10, 15 years ago, that price hasn't changed. Yet, obviously, we're struggling with inflation right now. Everybody's salaries have gone up, starting salaries. I mean, when I started, it was like $16,000 was my starting salary, right? I think starting salaries are probably in the 50s right now. Uh, a little higher. It, yeah, or a little higher. Yeah. So it's, and those prices that we're charging are not changing. So to offer the quality that everyone wants and demands, you do have to look for alternative ways of delivering projects, which becomes difficult. Yes. Um, and we're getting away from sort of the craft of architecture. So it, it's, and educating your client in the services that you provide that are commensurate with the fee structure that you provided is always a challenge. Yeah. And as an example, when we now s submit proposals, we want to meet live with the client yep. and review the proposal in detail versus sending it via email. Now, that's not always possible when you're responding to public RFPs. Inspector does that quite often mm -hmm. on a state, federal, national level. But if you have the opportunity to sit with that client or owner's representative mm -hmm. and review it, it I, I think we'll see greater success. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's nothing worse than a company making millions and millions of dollars worth of decisions on they're going to give you 20 minutes to present, you know, why you should be picked. It's a, it's one of the most bizarre. It's fascinating to me. <laughs> one of the most bizarre And we things. carry all the liability and <laughs> right. all of the responsibility for these projects. Yep. And that is not looked at enough. Uh, when going down the path of selection. Yeah. Do you think with with sort of all of this that, you know, architecture as a field has always, you know, played a significant role in sort of shaping the built environment. Do you think that, you know, we've kind of lost our stature on the hierarchy of things? We're not as well respected as lawyers and doctors. And at one point we were, right? Um, so the, the, the architect used to be known as the master architect mm -hmm. way back in the day where we had the role of what the owner's rep and project managers were doing. And that business was formed out of, carved out of what the architectural services were. Absolutely. The, the perception of the architect <clears throat> is not where it should be. It's just simply not. And Part of what I want to do for the balance of my career, in addition to running my business, is to really be a voice through the AIA, through the universities that I lecture at, as to what the status of the architect must be. Mm. Not what it should be, but what it has to be. And that's not easy. Yeah. Because there's not a lot of voice, there's not a lot of listening to that. And so... I spent a good amount of time educating for the next generation that's going to come in so they have more respect for what they're going to be doing. You know, part of my lecture series where, where I speak is, you know, what else you can do with your architectural degree as a registered architect? Mm. I always say, and I laugh about it, and I talk to my friends and colleagues, the smartest architects are the ones that don't practice architecture. <laughs> They've gone into asset management, yeah. real estate, private equity, yeah. construction management, yeah. development, yeah. architect, developer. You know, they're they're taking their skill set, but they're not practicing it live. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. And that's what we need to flip the pancake over. We we have to do it. 
Yeah. We must do it. And the opportunity really is now to do it while architects are considered essential. Remember during the pandemic? Yeah. We were essential. We were able to go to job sites. We were permitted to be in the field. Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of raised our bar. And we need to maintain that and then continue to elevate it. I like that. And listen, any way I can help or the podcast can help, that'd be a great, you know, it could be a, another vehicle for Absolutely. that, which would be, which would Absolutely. be great. Um, what's your thoughts on black cape architects or stark architects? Um, do you believe firms like yours and mine um, can produce equally as compelling of design? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It. I think the the architects that are celebrated around the world, and there are many, there are very few that we all that are recognizable in their name and their brand, all started where we have started. Yeah. And their career trajectories, I have to say, have a lot to do with patience, luck, and timing. Yeah. They were selected, they won a competition. And that put them in the limelight. But I don't think, and I think once you have that, you're able to compound that success on a, let's call it a stark attack level. Yeah. I think if, if those of us that are, let's say, in that triangle of opportunity are given such opportunity, I see absolutely no reason, at least from Spectre, that we could not be apples to apples with with these architects on a global basis. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I, I see a lot of the work that we do, especially on the interiors, is absolutely gorgeous. Same with you all. I, I mean, you know, we all have, and and I have some extraordinarily talented designers, right? Um, and I've worked with extraordinarily talented designers that were are and probably just as good as any of those. But you're right; it's a different level of its circumstances or whatever has gotten them to that level. Sure. They've gotten a, a bit of notoriety. You know, collaboration joint venturing and association with architects mm -hmm. who have name status helps. You know, Spectre has done that with a number of, let's use the word again, star architects right. here in the States. Behind the scenes is architect of record. You know, we continue to have a significant business of that. Um, but given where I want to drop the fishing line in the ponds that I'm working in now, Who's to say that we're not going to get there? The name Spectre does have a phenomenal reputation that goes back to when my dad started this enterprise in 1965. Yeah. Local at best, yes. But what he was able to create, the visionary architecture that he put forth during his time, would have classified him in that role locally. No doubt. Yeah. And, you know, we've leveraged off of that now and have taken it and, you know, expanded the cone on a global basis. So, yeah. so you mentioned that you do teach um, and, and it's more of business side of architecture, yes. right? Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's relative to sort of the architecture, um, you know, kind of how do we get from from where we are now to, to where we want we need to have the profession so go. So currently I lecture at the University of Michigan. I'm a Michigan Wolverine through and through. Go blue <laughs> to anybody that is listening. Uh, I do lecture out at the Taubman School of Architecture. I sit on the Dean's Council there as it relates to development of new curriculum for the College of Architecture. 
I also lecture at Syracuse University School of Architecture and currently the New York Institute of Technology School of Architecture. Um, each of these are phenomenal in their teachings of theory. Mm -hmm. And we all know, having gone through the education process, that it is a brutal, brutal education as it relates to commitment of time, the amount of work and effort that goes into to get to a, a Bachelor in Science of Architecture or a Bachelor's of Architecture or a Master of Architecture. And then the time thereafter to intern for your IP credits to then be eligible to get registered yep. and then go through the registration process and the exam process. Now, I can tell you, it took me three years to pass my exam in 1997 when I finally finished it. <laughs> That's when they gave it live at Pier 55 on the west side with 4,000 people I've, I've on the pier things, inside yeah. for 12 hour <laughs> days. I've never experienced anything like it. Uh, I saw people throw up their papers and <laughs> scream bloody murder and just walk out. The commitment that is required to get to a registration is unlike, I don't think, any other professional profession. And it's extraordinary. But yet these kids that are coming out of school have no concept on how to run a business. Or even what does the business of architecture even mean? We have summer associates right now that come and go. We hire new talent. And they're, they're coming in right now with the, you know, the fully educated and the greatest softwares and AI technology and everything that we need as a business. But have no concept of actually how we actually make money. <laughs> and how we become a for-profit. And that's frustrating. Yeah. And that must be done in school. And I've gotten yelled at by the deans, by faculty during my lectures as to what are you doing? What are you saying to these students? Well, I'm giving them what the reality is of this amazing profession that they have chosen to go down the path to become. Yeah. If they're interested in making money, and that's commensurate with the compensation schedules and plans <laughs> of what we're paying these kids out of school. You're yeah. right. You hit it on the head earlier. 50000 60000 if you're lucky. Law, 120 to 180 Yeah. I always say we should be paid like lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember my professional practice in undergraduate, and it, it was you would go there to take a nap because they really didn't tell you anything about professional practice. I couldn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't business. Um, and I, I totally agree. I mean, I've learned everything in business, on the business side, on the job, which is good and bad, right? I've had good to self-educate yes. myself and other sources and, and things like YPO, Young Presidents Organization, helping me with stuff like that. So, um, but I don't recommend it. You know, it's not, can't do this it's not for everybody. <laughs> you can't do it on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do here is we, we do try to, you know, every project manager understands what the backup is to, to their projects, right? They understand how, obviously how much money they have. They understand how much everybody costs. They understand how much each hour costs. And then their goal is to meet with the team and describe that to the team. Hey, this is what the fee is. This is how we're going to do this. This is what the hours are. 
And I would say it works pretty well. We try to be as transparent as possible. So at least that's sort of step one to, by the way, every line that you draw does associate to dollars, um, which I could tell you for the first probably 10, 15 years of my career, I didn't care. I don't know what the fee was. Why would you? I didn't know what the fee was and didn't care what the fee was. You know? Right. And educating your team as to what the fee is. Yep. Now, there, there's, there's two sides to this. What is the proper fee to right. service the project <laughs> to give your team the, the, the amount of money that they need to generate the work and to have a profit? A lot of times in our market, you know, we're competing against one another. And as we said earlier, the fees sometimes and most likely get compressed and then are accepted, but have not been vetted to confirm that you have enough money to actually do the work. Yeah. And that, that's a challenge. It's, it should completely be the opposite. Here's <laughs> what we need. This is the fee. Yep. It doesn't always work that way. It doesn't. There are sometimes, you know, some of the, some of the really good owners, reps, project managers, I, they become good partners in a sense, right? And they will say, um, you know, the client's pushing back. We keep telling them that it can't be done for any less. Can you confirm? You know, things like that. And that little bit of dialogue actually really does help because rather than just dropping our pants for the, for the hell of it to win the project, you know, okay, fine. You want to make a little bit of a deal. We could do that. Um, but, but having that dialogue and then that someone sticking up for us, I think it should be us, not necessarily through someone in between, but it is what it is, right? And at least they can be, at least the good PMs that we work with can be an advocate for we, us. We, the owner's rep and project management groups must be an advocate, not just for the architects, but for the engineers and also obviously for the owner. Yeah. There, there's no doubt. But it goes back to walking a client through the proposal first so they understand it. They yeah. see where we're coming from. They see the the dollars that are going to be spent per phase. You know, our contracts are be so transparent. Everything yep. is on the table. Yep. And I guess sometimes, you know, Spectre's fees tend to be on the higher side. Because it's just all out there for everyone to see. We're not, there's nothing behind or hidden on page 32 as a line item as an additional service. Yeah. We don't roll like that. Yeah. Yeah. So the more we can discuss it up front, the better off. The better. Yep. So are. switching gears to Spectre itself, um, I referenced your father, um, yes. Michael Harris Spectre. Um, and you give him credit for founding your firm. Um, can you touch a bit on a little bit on the, the family dynamics? Because you you have an architecture dynasty as well. It's it's your your father, your brother Scott, yourself was your grandfather, my, my grandfather Charles Spector. Yes. Yeah, your grandfather and 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 now my your, nephew your, Jake and yes. now your nephew. So pretty cool. So how does all that work? And what are the different Specter companies that exist? Christian, very, very good question. <laughs> very good question. Uh, so my dad, Michael Spector, founded the firm in 1965 in the garage of his home in Great Neck. He would get up every morning. He would put a suit and tie on and go down to the garage. <laughs> work from he, home. Work from home. <laughs> he would take the Long Island Railroad in every day, no office in the city, just to get on the train and to talk to anyone that would talk to him about architecture. And that's how he started to build his clientele. And he had his big break in 1968 by the CEO of Allstate Insurance Company, who kept listening to him on the train and hired him to do their world headquarters on Long Island in Farmingville, Long Island. 
Cool. And that is how the Spectre Enterprise was born. <laughs> and around the same time that I was born. So we, my brother, my sister, Jolie, and I grew up around it 24-7. Yeah. We would go visit job sites on Sunday mornings, see the dirt, see what he was doing. So we were kind of enmeshed in it. So we knew very early on that, or at least I did, that I wanted to go into this profession. I remember taking mechanical drawing classes in sixth grade and seventh grade and really enjoying it. But with a powerful father figure who had a name, who had built the business, you know, it, it seemed logical. Yep. So I went to school for it. My brother went to school for it. And we joined the firm in, you know, 1987 and in 1989 when it was Michael Harris Spector and Associate Architects. His father, Charles Spector, had the opportunity to work with my dad for four years before he passed away in 1975. Oh, wow. So the, the legacy um, was always there. And so for 29 years, I had the opportunity of working next to you know, my dad every day in different capacities, working my way through the firm to the point where, you know, when he decided that it was time for him to step back, we spent a fair amount of time working with consultants to ensure that the family business would transfer successfully. Not everyone does from one to two, especially from two to three. Oh yeah. And now we're going three to four. <laughs> and so we successfully migrated to leadership between Scott Spector and I, and built a phenomenal organization with phenomenal team members and clients that you know are now our friends. I always say my greatest success professionally is how many friends I have that started as clients long yeah. after projects are complete. Yeah. And that's how I base my professional success. And so with moving forward in trajectories and transition continuing family planning, um, I decided that I needed to form an, a, a new enterprise called Spectre Companies, Scott Spectre Maintaining Spectre Group. Okay. All done with the blessing of everyone for the betterment of both of us. Yeah. And and for the betterment of the family, which is super critical. Yeah. And which has, you know, we were in it almost a year now and it was it's been seamless. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah. Congrats. And so what makes the your latest venture, your new company different from the previous? So it's another good question. So beyond the core practices that we continue to offer in architecture, interiors, master planning, you know, we've developed an entire real estate consulting service for those in development, uh, those that are uh, need examination of what they're looking to do. Our contacts in the in the private equity space and real estate, private equity and money, we're bringing that to the table. Mm. To, to offer as we do examinations of different opportunities. And so you're creating projects for yourself in a sense too. We are creating projects for ourselves and yeah. we're given the opportunity to participate. That's great. This. So we're, we have a section of the business as architect developer now, mm -hmm. which creates, you know, a whole different annuity of income versus just the fee. Yeah. And we're super excited about that. 
And we're also now really immersed, as you are, sitting in your, your <laughs> studio here, you know, focused on how the, what's the benefit of innovation in AI for the field of construction, real estate, and architecture. Yep. And how we can embrace that to streamline certain processes, to increase profitability. And so, as you are, we're very, very focused on that. And utilizing some incredible tools now for our clients um, that just bring efficiency and speed and more certainty in looks and feels and cost very early on in the process. That's great. What what type of AI have you been experimenting with or, or using? So there's a company uh, out of Israel called Cubic, okay. Q-B-I-Q.ai. Okay. In transparency, I am a investor in the company. Oh, good for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and they are on the forefront of creating test fits and 3D animation in record turnaround time. Wow. Hours, not days. Wow. And have surpassed over 100 million square feet of space that they've modeled around the world. And so we've embraced that technology and we are working with Cubic and have developed, you know, Spectre menus as it relates to what people can use globally to see our brand and our look and feel applied to a asset strategy which is a fancy name for fit study. Yeah. So next time you go talk to your clients, use asset strategy. I like that. You're right. It's better than fit study, right? <laughs> um, and it's it's working. And we're able to, the goal is if we go on a site tour at 200 Park this afternoon, and we have an initial program, by the time we're completed with that site tour, we're able to produce a floor plan and a 3D walkthrough. So the speed to market is yeah. super important for brokers, yeah. for clients, and it's an off, it's a service that we offer not as an additional cost to the work. We're very similar in that respect, and that's part of what you know. My strategy with the room that you're in here, with the virtual reality software that Fantastic. we've developed, is you know I always say we can do what a normal architect does in three weeks. We can do in three hours right. because of the iterations that we can do quickly. And get decision making done. Right. Decision making is, as it turns out, the hardest part of what we do. Right, getting someone to decide, you know, everything from big moves uh, to you know colors uh, or spatial, you know, entries and things like that. And and getting to that approval process is what delays projects, makes an already tight fee even worse because now it's two more weeks, three more weeks are tacked on and now we're behind schedule and it just goes on and on, on and, and on. And on. And <laughs> but, but you're right though, the technology that you're using and that we are using, the turnaround time to for let's say edits or comments is immediate, mm -hmm. which just reduces that entire time of getting to certainty. And you know we're excited to use it in our hospitality practice, our mixed use practice. Yeah. And we're going to be using it on our larger scale master planning practice for our entertainment projects overseas. So the the API is there. Yeah. It's now able to take that and to mold it for the different typologies that we're involved in. Yeah, that's great. So I, I referenced earlier workplace and life place. Yes. Um, what is life place? So I came up with this and I actually <laughs> put it in for a trademark request. <laughs> But anybody can use it right now. So COVID really created that when we emerged that the return to the workplace is not just for work. Mm -hmm. It's for people to have to for life and because not everything that is occurring in the workplace 
relates directly just to a task. It's now become places where people are gathering for connection, socializing, um, meeting new people, understanding the culture a little bit more. So what's happening there is now workplace and life place have kind of joined forces. Yeah. And if you look at it that way, it, it kind of opens your eyes up in terms of what we need to create for that space to bring people back, not just for work, but to experience life. Mm. The, the younger generation that are working predominantly from their home or remotely are not experiencing the life connections that you have at your fingertips when you're live with your team. Yeah. And I hear it time and time again. You know, the benefit of working from home, yes, it exists. We understand it. But the you're you're just missing out on the leaning over the conference room table and you know yeah. chit chatting about something. The relationships and creating a relationship. I met people. my wife at work. You there know what I mean? Go. Like, and I know so many people that did. I know people here that have met their spouse at work. Um, you know, a couple recently got married. You know, so uh, they 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 separated in terms of work. Uh, one moved on to another company, but. Um, I've said it before on this podcast, and I, and I do mean it. The more I see it, the more I think about it. I find the work from home consistently, you know, one or two days, I get it. But I find it sad. There is, there, to me, there's nothing sadder than someone sitting in their basement or in their apartment and just working <clears throat> by themselves. Uh, I get that it's convenient. But okay, at some point, you're, what are you giving up for all of that convenience? I think you're giving, I think you're giving up a lot. And, you know, thankfully, what I'm seeing is those that are just graduating now from school, and I don't know if they're the gen whatever, I need to know what to <laughs> gen call Z, them. Gen Z, Gen <laughs> Z. They're thirsty to be in the workplace. Yes. Full time. I'm seeing it with my daughter who recently graduated from the University of Michigan. All she wants is to be live. Yeah. In an office. And that is refreshing. So perhaps that movement, yeah. that body will bring us to where we need to be. Yeah. She probably um, did a few years of COVID, you know, college. College was virtual. COVID for her. It was crazy. It was, it was a very yeah. difficult experience. Which is also, that's sad. You know, that was the best time of my life was college, yeah, you know. A, it, it was a challenge for all of them. <laughs> Thankfully, she landed well and had a great experience. And we've kind of touched on this, but, but you know, you're, you're big on LinkedIn with the return to office as of, as am I, um, I kind of like the dialogue with people. I like when people challenge me on it. It's kind of fun. Um, you know, I, I guess what is your perspective sort of post COVID on, um, the, we talked about a little, the younger generation, but what about the, the older generation? You know, those that, you know, say, you know, I actually can, you know, I spent 30 years, you know, commuting every day, an hour on the train or an hour on the bus, whatever it is. So, sorry, Mark, I really got to work from home here and kind of take it or leave it. What What is your What's your thought process on that? Have you encountered some of that? We do. Um, <laughs> look, we had a number of team members that were working remote before COVID. <clears throat> Those that opted to move to Florida, California, but wanted to stay with the firm. Mm-hmm. And so we set them up accordingly. And so they were granted five days remote and were 
performing absolutely beautifully. You know, we didn't lose a, a hiccup when we went fully remote and we're three days in the office, two days remote now. Mm -hmm. And the consensus is the team looks at it as a perk. Okay, I like that. And versus it just being three and two. You know, me, I'm in the office five days a week and sometimes sitting there all by myself. <laughs> me too. <laughs> on a beautiful day and wondering, you know, where, where on earth is everyone? What frustrates me a bit, though, is when sometimes you hear from your team, uh, my internet connection is slow today, or I left all the materials and finishes at the office. I'll get to it tomorrow when I'm in. Mm -hmm. That makes me just like batshit crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like absolutely crazy. And so, you know, we're beginning a dialogue is, are we, are we moving towards a, a four-in-one model? Mm -hmm. or a, a different hybrid model. You know, you're hearing in the you're hearing now that should we be looking at a a four full day away, four a four day away, can't, bleh, bleh, <laughs> a four day work week. Yeah. Which that that's been very successful over in Europe. I don't see that for me. Yeah. Has it been though in Europe? I guess that's the question, right? Well, I, that, that's I'm the... <laughs> not sure the jury's out, but they're right. they're instituting it. Yeah. So how do we evolve? I think it's a good question. The larger issue is, is that the economics of the city of New York require more bodies in the office on more days. Yep. Getting lunch, using the banks, Getting lunch, using use, whatever it is. Everything yeah. yep. to, for this city to sustain itself. Yep. You know, as you are, we're working with some of the best clients in New York City right now in the best buildings, predominantly in the law firm and private equity space. Yep. You know, technology is not doing anything right now. Yep. There's a number of buildings that are going to be coming due there, you know, on 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 their mortgages that are going to be coming due that they're going to be given back to the bank. Mm -hmm. Those that have cash flow and don't have these types of mortgages are going to survive through the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah. But there's going to be a whole paradigm shift in what the availability of, you know, B- B minus office space that's currently right now just not moving and not getting action. Yeah. It will get action again if we can just get everybody back to where they need to be. But what that looks like, it's your guess and my guess <laughs> yeah, at this point. True. Um, so I was reading a little bit about you and you you refer to yourself as a positivity nut, which obviously I can tell from from knowing you a bit now. Um, where do you think that comes from? And have you always been focused on on being positive or did that come from somewhere else? No, that, that's 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 just the life that I lead. OK, you know, I'm never negative about anything because there's always some positivity in anything that might be occurring to you negative. You got. You have to be able to find that in, in in everything that you do. You know the energy that I exude when I wake up at four fifteen every morning and I start my day and I don't retire until ten eleven o'clock at night. You know is all about what do I need to do today to create this positive environment for myself, my family, my team, my clients, hmm. and. Sometimes my, you know, my wife and my kids think I'm just, you know, crazy when yeah, it comes to this. I have that same problem. <laughs> but if you put yourself in that mindset, it 
you you bang the universe in such a manner that it bangs back to you twofold, threefold. And it's the only way I know how to live my life. But we all have shit behind the door, especially yeah. those in leadership and ownership. What we contend with, you know, is a sign curve of ups and downs. Yeah. And we want to create homeostasis for everyone else that works with us. Yep. We don't want to put that out. And so I have taught myself to harness that and to only project in a certain way. And now it's just natural to me. Yeah. You know, a lot of it has to do with eye contact and smiling and just being happy and joyful. And you and I, we get to get up every morning and we get to go to work. We don't have to go to work. And if you think about it, you get to do this with gratitude. Gratitude is the core of optimism. Mm. And if you look at it that way, it, you, you just open yourself up. So well said. I love it. So you are, um, you're famous outside of architecture. <laughs> um, you appeared on the Daily Show, the Daily Show with John Stewart. <laughs> um, I saw your. Um, I watched the video, which is very. What did funny. you think? I loved it. It was hilarious. Um, That's so. Funny. How did? How the hell did that come about? So I got up. So <laughs> our Long Island office was located in North Hills, uh, where Deepdale Golf Club is located, which was about two or 300 yards from our office at the time. And I got a phone call from um, The Daily Show as the the local, you know, large business, the well-known business in North Hills. Mm -hmm. Not many businesses in North Hills at that <laughs> time. We want to talk to you about, a you know, a bit we want to do about Deepdale Golf Club an eminent domain where the town of North Hills wanted to invoke eminent domain to take the golf course for their residents and constituents. And so it just blossomed into <laughs> this amazing bit that I had so much fun making that kind of is still out on YouTube. Oh yeah, it's there. <laughs> and every year now I put it up on my social media, you know, if you know, you know. Yeah. And so Super, super funny. That's really funny. And embarrassing for me to say, but you're also on uh, George the Rescue, which I love that show. Uh, I love home improvement shows, although I find them more recently, I don't know, they're not doing anything like extraordinary. It's always like just kind of lame ass homes that they're making lame, just a little less lame. Um, and I always found that the show that George the Rescue uh, came out of was that NBC Four show where they show all the Hamptons houses and all the super right, nice, correct. all the stuff that I can never afford. And <laughs> um, but we get to design every now and then. And um, but George the Rescue is a, that's a great. And how'd you end up on that show? So uh, a construction manager that we work with in New York City on our higher end residential portfolios. Um, we have a business where we do townhouses and apartments that we really don't celebrate or talk about. Um, but one of the construction managers recommended me because of our relationship to George and NBC, do we want to do this pro bono work, you know, locally on the, in the Long Island community? And it turned into multiple opportunities to, to do these projects, some large, some small, but all very, very meaningful. 
Yeah. And George and his team are fantastic. And he's wonderful to work with. Oh, cool. The kicker out of all this is, is that I won a New York Emmy. I, I heard. <laughs> that was next on my list. In 2012 <laughs> for my appearance on the George uh, to the Rescue show. So I have that Emmy on my desk behind me. That's cool. In my background for my Zoom and my Teams calls. <laughs> and I change my backgrounds depending on what project – we're being considered for. We've got some great giant boards, similar to your studio here. Uh-huh. But I have Miami in the foreground. So every call, the question is, what's that? Is that an Emmy? Uh-huh. And so, oh, yes, you know, I want an, I want an Emmy in 2012 for my appearance <laughs> on George of the Rest. So cool. <laughs> it's an icebreaker. That's very cool. Very cool. So as we wrap up here, is there anything we haven't covered uh, that you want to tell the listeners? Um, is there anything we haven't covered that I want to tell the listeners? <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a tough question. <laughs> um, look, we're, we're, we're in some very interesting times right now. There's no doubt. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, you need to have confidence in yourself to move forward and migrate through and above the trench. And by doing that, you'll bring those with you. And, you know, architecture and what we do, you know, what did someone say to me yesterday? A unicorn that doesn't breed other unicorns is an endangered species. Mm. So in the world of business, our business, our aim should be not only to strive for success, but to mentor others, you know, to become unicorns in their own right. And similarly, in our personal lives, you know, we should do that with our children and loved ones. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for, Thanks for being having the me, guest Chris. here on Super. the Anti-Architect Podcast. Super. Um, you're very inspirational. I love the way that you speak and talk about the profession. Um, I'd love to collaborate with you on seeing where we could... Uh, you know, get some other firms on board here with, you know, pushing us forward. Back I think up we to should the do top it. of the food chain. So. I, I think we should reach out to all the major firms in the city. I'll host. Yeah. Happy to host a cocktail hour or dinner. All right. Let's do it. And let's see what comes out of it. No harm, no foul, but it should be done. Absolutely. And I think we would have a great time. That'd be fun. <laughs> so to learn more about Mark Spector and Spector Companies, um, Obviously, look up Mark on LinkedIn, check out the uh, SpectreCompanies.com website, and definitely look for the um, the Daily Show uh, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I appreciate you it. You got it. Awesome.